Hello, everybody. My name is Sophie. And my name is Gemma. And you're listening to True Crime Say What, the show where I know what I'm talking about. And I'm just here for the ride. All right. Okay, so this is take two. Um, Not that we got very far into the case, but, you know, fun, fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sophie kept disconnecting every five seconds. It's not a true crime say what episode if there's not a slew of technical difficulties going into it, you know? Yeah, for real. Uh, so today we're talking about a case that I had no idea about until this week. And I have no idea how I never heard of this because this is batshit crazy. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, I want a lighter case. So I started looking up like, okay, what are the most like bizarre, funny, weird, true crime cases that I can find? You know, just get the little BuzzFeed listicles or some shit. <laughs> and I found this one. And it only, the article that I found only talked about half of the case. And then I started reading the other half of the case. And I was like, oh, shit, this is insane and really sad i'm putting you guys through it again this week but hopefully we'll get some uh, lighter moments in here i'm sure we will without further ado let's go ahead and travel to townsend massachusetts and meet daniel laplante Ooh. <laughs> i'm gonna say it again laplante laplante that's his I name just, i just I... like his name <laughs> yes. It's fun. It has an yeah. E at the end. Um, I thought it was like Laplante or like something <laughs> like that, but no. Everywhere I said Laplante, so that's what we're going with. All right. Laplante? Uh, <laughs> like no, it's that. probably it's probably Laplante. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I think so. I'm thinking so. <laughs> Daniel Laplante was born May 16th, 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts to his mother Elaine LaPlante. So, um there's not a lot like a whole ton of information about his childhood, but we do have like a basic outline which I'm going to take you through. Cool. First of all, don't really know his father's name, uh but he's an asshole anyway, so it doesn't really matter too much. Father LaPlante. Father LaPlante. Sir LaPlante. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout Daniel's childhood, first of all, trigger warning, he was psychologically, physically, and sexually abused by his father. Uh, and later, when his mother remarried, he was abused by his stepfather as well. So just not off to a great start. No, not really. Yes, the two abusive assholes in Daniel's childhood. Not that great. Uh, yeah. Uh, Daniel also found no escape when he went to school as he struggled both academically and socially at school. The academic hurdles he faced were caused by uh, dyslexia and later we'll find out ADHD, hmm. uh, which he received no help for or any support from his family or teachers. So he was just like, Alone on that one. Poor guy. Yeah, it was also like, what, the 70s? So well, not yeah. a lot was... <laughs> no belief in ADHD or mental illness. <laughs> exactly. Did not exist. Nope. The social issues that Daniel faced were because 
the other children saw Daniel as like really creepy. So probably because of his abuse, he was a very, very quiet kid and he mostly kept to himself. Um, and then he just like wasn't being taken care of at all at home. So he would come to school like smelling bad, wearing old clothes. He'd be all disheveled. So like the kids just did not interact with him. Uh, yeah, understandable. I don't think I would either. I don't think I would either. But, um, you know, not Daniel's fault, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor, poor thing, honestly. Like... <laughs> Oh, well, we can feel bad for him now. For now. For now. For now. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to do some terrible, awful shit, and I'll take it completely back. Feel bad for the child, not for the murderer. True, true. We keep it at that. When Daniel entered his early teenhood, his problems became more dramatic. He began acting more violent and aggressive, both at school and at home. And this was to the point where... Daniel's escalating behavior became worrying enough for Daniel's school to notice, for them to actually like be like, okay, uh, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. So school officials recommended that Daniel start seeing a psychiatrist, and so he began having regular therapy sessions. Okay. Well. Yeah. So at least someone was like, hey, can we please get this kid some help? <laughs> yeah. Someone. Uh, unfortunately, did not go as planned. Firstly, he was diagnosed with ADHD, which was great. You know, it put a label on something that he's probably been experiencing most of his life. However, instead of treating Daniel or like helping him cope with day to day life, his psychiatrist began to sexually assault him. Oh, God. I know. This dude doesn't get a break. No, not at all. And they're all, like, male figures in his life that are, like, overtaking him, which is, like, that sucks that he has that relationship now. Yeah, for real. This abuse continued for a whole year with Daniel going to see him regularly. I think it was on a weekly basis, maybe even more. Hmm. And then Daniel ultimately stopped going to his therapy sessions, probably for the best. But I I think he uh, left those sessions worse than he entered them, which is not great. Yeah, um, I would definitely agree. Uh, Not great and definitely messed him up. (laughs) Yeah, I, I could see that. I could see that messing anyone up. Oh, I also forgot to mention this, but Daniel was the oldest of three. So he had two younger brothers. And I think they also endured some sexual, um, physical, psychological abuse. Not from a therapist, though, right? No, not from a therapist. Um, (laughs) The therapist. Like, what is is the therapist making home visits? Like from their dad and their stepdad. Because both of them were assholes, too. So. You know, yay. It's just a great family dynamic so far. At some point, Daniel started to act out criminally. He he crossed that line. So in his early teens, he got a kick out of breaking and entering into places, which, you know, if something gets you there. (laughs) No. He's really like to break down doors. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> Although Daniel would enter these houses and take things kind of for the thrill of it, money or stealing was never his main motivation for this behavior. Uh, Daniel never entered a house to kind of find valuables. He instead liked the idea of messing with people. So huh. he would He's enter. Like, Ooh, someone was in your house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what he liked. He liked huh. the fact that he was in the house and he was messing shit up and people noticed. So he essentially wants to be a ghost. So he would enter houses and his main goal was to disturb belongings, like moving furniture. He would sometimes even like leave little items um, or he would leave like a half eaten or a half drunk drink, like just left on the table. like. Imagine coming home and there's like a half-eaten sandwich. That's that was his prerogative in okay. entering these houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His main appeal was being able to scare and unsettle people, and he loved knowing that he was the cause of that. Mm. Yeah. So okay, fair enough. That's kind of the mindset he had. This is how, at age sixteen. Daniel was able to come across a young girl who caught his eye. Huh. Um, wait, while breaking into a house? Mm-hmm. We're gonna oh. get into it. No. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> it's off to a rocky start. Go on. In, in 1986, Annie Andrews was a 15-year-old girl from Pepperell, Massachusetts. I think I pronounced that correctly. I did look it up, but, you know, it's been, like, 30 minutes since I did that, so you're Meh. just as good as mine. <laughs> she had recently lost her mother to breast cancer and was left as the oldest daughter of Brian Andrews with an eight-year-old sister, Jessica. So. Yeah. Okay. Not, not doing so hot. No. Even though Jessica... And um, Annie were, like, what, 15 and 8? Like, that's a big age gap. They got along, like, really well. Yeah, that's that's half. But, yeah, they got along really well and were, like, really good friends. So that's really sweet. Uh, despite suffering the loss of her mother, Annie was still a regular 15-year-old girl who started to develop an interest in boys. You know, I say regular with quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. But Annie and her friends would often have stereo those like stereotypical conversations about who they were crushing on that week and like what they were gonna wear and you know, you know, yeah, uh, the the girly stuff. Fifteen year old girls. Yes. <laughs> this is why when Annie received a mysterious phone call from an unknown guy going by the name of Danny who claimed to have obtained her phone number from a mutual friend. She jumped at that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, uh, so on the call, Danny said that he was tall, blonde, smart, and athletic. Um, I don't think he's any of those. No, that's the <laughs> antithesis of Daniel, because spoiler alert, this is Daniel that we know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Daniel LaPlante LaPlante uh, Daniel uh, gonna be real He he's like scrawny and he has dark hair and it's always like greasy uh, not the looker sorry my guy like 
No. I can't be held accountable for the attractiveness of men, but I can say that Danny is not attractive. <laughs> Sorry, my you guy. Know, like, sometimes I don't think I can either because. You're you know, the, to the crazy scrawny boy. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I was going to say the exact opposite, actually. Um, that, oh. like, sometimes I get absolutely shocked at the shit that, like, um, I work with a lot of high schoolers, and so uh-huh. you know, boys will come through the drive-thru, and they're like, oh my god, he's so hot. Um, what? <laughs> always baffles me. <laughs> the same. But I feel as a lesbian, I <laughs> more of a bass. Yeah, fair enough. It's fine. So, you know, we know that's not how Daniel actually looks. In fact, Daniel, or Danny, had a, not obtained Annie's number in such an innocent way as he claimed. He had previously broken into the Andrews' house and obtained the family's phone number this way. It's theorized, we don't know for sure, but like, how else would he have like been in the know that he saw a family photo with Annie in it, and he was like, I want to date that girl. Okay. So, you know, huh. that's how that happens. So, um, any boys listening? That is not how you scout out a woman. Not Just, what we uh, do. <laughs> not the move. Uh, yeah, I, I could safely say that as well. Uh, but Annie didn't know this, so she's still like, okay, give him this a shot. She's not head over heels yet. Uh, either way, they just continued to talk on the phone for about a week, and Annie was having a really good time talking to Danny, and she enjoyed the escape that she was able to get from having a conversation with him. Like, they got on really well. Hmm. So, when Danny eventually asked her on a date, she gladly accepted. Um, you know. Uh, yeah, that's gonna be an issue. Uh, yeah, what are you going to do when she opens the door? <laughs> and sees your 5'3 dark hair ass on her lawn. What the fuck? He's technically 5'8, but... Uh, oh, shit, well, I, yeah, okay, 5'3 was a really I short think... guess, but... <laughs> but, like, he's not, like, 6'2. Like, that's what he was saying. No, like, that's my height. He's He's of average height for a guy, I think. I don't think... What? Is that not average height? Oh, actually, I have no idea. I think... I shouldn't that's say like, shit. like... I shouldn't say shit. I think that's about average height. Um, uh, yeah, it's 5'9". Okay. Yeah. So he's not, like, exceptionally short. No. He just, like, was trying to overcompensate, just like he was with everything else about his appearance. Yeah. So, you know, just imagine her surprise when on the day of the date, Annie opened the door to not find the dashing young man that was described to her, but rather a scrawny, acne-written, dark, greasy-haired stranger claiming to be Danny that she knew from their conversation. Same voice, though. Yeah, she was or probably I guess like, maybe they were text. No, they were, no they were uh, calling, it is right? the 80s. Oh, there you go. Yep, it's called. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this is an 86, so. 
Well, don't, I don't, don't know. Really. Maybe maybe they were writing letters. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> You're right. They were um, exchanging pigeons. Ex- <laughs> yeah. This exactly. is not what you described in your pigeon message. <laughs> Daniel. Is, uh, Daniel. <laughs> uh, despite Danny's differing appearance, Annie decided to go ahead and go on the date because she's like, okay, I did get along with him. And like, you know, it, it would be super awkward if I was just like, no. <laughs> yeah. If, he just, if she just like shut the door. He's like, uh-uh. Not on tonight. She probably should have, honestly. Uh, yeah. Danny took Annie to a local fair that was in the area at the time. And, you know, it's like a cute date, but it did not end up being a cute date because while on the date, Annie kind of started to open up a little bit more about her family. And she talked a tiny baby bit about the recent loss of her mother. Upon hearing that Annie's mother had died, Danny became oddly interested. Um, he bombarded her with sensitive questions, including asking Annie how much her mother had suffered towards the end of her life. Um, okay. Bro? No. Choices. <laughs> Very interesting choice. Mm-hmm. And showing your deep uh, interest in human suffering on the first date is probably not the one I would go with. Probably not. Or ever. Don't share that with people. Just, just, you could go through life without sharing that information. To yourself. Some thoughts are inside thoughts. (laughs) Annie, who was growing increasingly uncomfortable at this point, ended the date after only about an hour with Danny. Yeah. And not only did she end it, she made it very clear before she left that she had no interest in seeing or talking to him ever again. Yeah, she was like, "Uh, this isn't going to work out. And dipped. So, when Annie returned home, uh, life went on as normal. And Danny never attempted to contact her again, so she assumed she would never have to worry about him again. You know, this was until a few days later, when Jessica and Annie, dealing with a mixture of boredom and grief from their mother dying, decided to hold a seance in their basement. Okay. You know, as you do. (laughs) Yeah. With her eight-year-old sister? Yeah. (laughs) Dude. (laughs) Listen, I use Ouija boards and stuff, but with the eight-year-old? With the eight-year-old? No, the eight-year-old was probably like, oh my god, my sister's letting me do like an that's, older girl activity. True. Yeah, she was probably like, pumped. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been. Fair enough. Uh-huh. And also, uh, what I was about to say is Brian, who had just become a single parent, was away for work a lot. So that's why a lot of um, the stuff I'm about to talk about just like no dad there. It, their dad's like not gonna be there. He will. Yeah. He he obviously cares, but <laughs> well, he's done work. I mean, yeah. He, um, a lot of times, uh, Jessica and Annie were left at home. Yeah. 
so of course they were didn't really expect anything to happen. They were just like, you know, we want to do a séance. <laughs> Why not? So they headed to the basement to perform one. You know, great. So uh, who was in the basement? Um, <laughs> and was it Daniel? <laughs> Uh, the performance of the seance was uneventful, and they ended it when their dad returned home because they didn't want to freak him out. <laughs> and um, they just like went on with their evening and had a grand old night until later when both Jessica and Annie were in their respective beds and they began to hear a rhythmic tapping on their walls. Just a tap, tap, tap. Like, coming from the walls. Huh. Uh Uh-huh. Both the girls were awoken by the noise, and they kind of, like, poked their heads out, and they were like, are you hearing this? And and the other one was like, yeah. And so they they both went and sat in Annie's room, and they were just kind of listening to the sound. And um, hearing that sound convinced them that their seance had actually worked. And at first, they were, like, super freaking excited. Yeah. They're like, oh, hell yeah. Mom? <laughs> Mom's home. Mom's home. Yeah. Uh, their happiness was very short lived as the knocking within the walls became a constant daily occurrence, um, which only occurred when their father wasn't in the house or was asleep. So hmm. it was something that was happening a lot, but it was only when Brian was away. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, They constantly told their father what they were hearing, but Brian just, like, refused to believe them. He was like, uh, okay. (laughs) Um, He also thought that his daughters were suffering from the loss of their mother and that this was kind of maybe how they were dealing with it, which, you know, that's understandable. I can see that. I can see that. I I can see why he didn't immediately go, oh, yeah, there's somebody in the walls. Exactly, because who the fuck (laughs) thinks that? Right. (laughs) Um, It wasn't long before the knocking wasn't the only thing that the girls started to notice. Objects began to move around the house, and furniture slowly began to shift. (laughs) Uh, He's just moving at an inch every day. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine how it's it's not that funny, but like, but like, like knowing he probably did some horrible shit in like five minutes, uh, it's not funny. But the idea of your couch moving like an inch every day, and you're just like, "What the fuck, my couch!" Like I swear, <laughs> like you would convince yourself that you're going crazy. Like you what? would, yeah. Like yeah. you would probably like move it back every time and be like, "What the fuck." <laughs> Or maybe you wouldn't even notice for a while, and then it becomes so noticeable that you're like, "Well, yeah." What? And then the couch is by the door, and you're like, "Huh? How did this happen?" <laughs> so the girls continued to tell their father what was happening, and they tried to convince him that their house was haunted. Because at this point, they're like, "Bro, bro, dude, the house is haunted, and we did it. And we're sorry, but <laughs> like, yeah, it is haunted, and we need you to believe us." Brian, of course, continued to not believe them and tried to convince the girls that they were just imagining things. And, you know, at this point, Brian has seen zero evidence to, like, right. be like, 
okay, something's going on. So he's just like, girls, I love you. <laughs> but. Yeah. The girls tried to ignore the tapping and the unexplained shifting of objects and like kind of just tried to convince themselves like, okay, maybe we are imagining this. Maybe we're making this up because, you know, just kind of something you start to think after a while. Yeah. Uh, this was until one night when the tapping was particularly aggressive. This time, however, they noticed it wasn't coming from the walls, but rather it was coming from below them so they could hear it under them. Oh, God, please don't go in the basement. Yes, I could. Annie made their way to the basement <laughs> where they saw on one of the basement walls writing in dripping red ink that oh looked terrifyingly like blood on that read, I'm in your room. Come and find me. Oh, no. Nope. Nope. No. The girls, um, being logical human beings, ran the fuck out of the basement and out of that house. <laughs> <laughs> Did they not get their dad? Uh, they, they were home alone. At this oh, time. Okay, okay. So they ran from the basement, ran out of the house, and they ran to a neighbor's house who they knew uh, pretty well. That's and good. they were like, um, can we wait for our dad to come home? Aww. And uh, the neighbors were aware that their mother had just died, and they were like, yeah, you can wait here. Like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, Brian was still convinced that the girls were imagining these things and that they themselves had written the message on the wall to prove some kind of point to him. He was like, okay. Okay, Brian. Um... <laughs> I understood why he wasn't concerned before, but why would they write that message to themselves and then run to the neighbor? I don't know, but like as a father who's like working really hard and has just lost um, his wife, I could kind of see it. Like maybe yeah, I, I don't to get my attention. Maybe I'm away from the house too much. Like I could see that angle for sure. Yeah, I don't think that he. Um, I don't know where I was going that with that, but I, I I can see how. Just he wouldn't start to think for a moment, like, like maybe maybe, maybe I should listen right a little here. bit and just like you know uh, look around the basement just to tell them there's nothing there. Do do a little search, my yeah. guy. It didn't help that when he went to go look at the message, it was found that the letters were written in ketchup rather than blood. So he was like, who the fuck got into the ketchup bottle? <laughs> and just like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, at this point, their, their father did put his girls into therapy, hoping that this would stop um, the behavior. So it wasn't like he was like, you guys are doing this on yourself. He was like, let's go to therapy and maybe see okay. why why we might be why this might be happening yeah well all right i can i can appreciate that the therapy seemed to be working pretty well as the girls didn't complain about any type of supernatural uh occurrences happening for the next two weeks after the incident that happened in the basement their troubles were far from over though as when the girls were left alone in the house again the tapping started up the tapping started up it it started again uh 
this time, they were led to Annie's room, where they found another scrawled-out message uh, in ketchup again, but, you know, looking very much like blood. And it said, I'm back. Find me if you can. Oh, my God. Nope. (laughs) Uh, The girls, again, ran from the house and sought refuge in their neighbor's house. Uh, They called their father, who was at work, and they told told him what had happened. And though he was still convinced the girls themselves were behind the uh, paranormal happenings, he was still concerned for his daughters, and he did promise to come home early. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's good. So he went to go see the girls, and then he went to the house by himself. When he arrived at the house, he went upstairs where the writing was, and he found the message that the girls had mentioned on the phone. But he also found a new uh, something going on, you know? Reports say that the knocking could still be heard upstairs. The TV in the living room was turned on and the volume was maxed off. And Mm -hmm. furthermore, when he went up to Annie's room, there was another message that read, marry me. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Yes. so, uh, Dad, Annie didn't write that shit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so now he's like, okay, this shit ain't happening. <laughs> yeah. So this is when he realized, okay, my kids aren't doing this. Um, this coupled with the fact that when he went to go, like, go back to his neighbor's house and be like, uh, let's go f- find a hotel room or something or, like, call the police. When he went to go down a hallway, he saw the figure of a scrawny boy standing in the hallway. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only that, but the boy was wearing a face full of makeup, a blonde wig, and clothes of their deceased wife slash mother. Oh, God. I know. Also, he was wielding a hatchet. Uh, Oh, oh. If it couldn't get any worse. Sorry, I I put that in in a different sentence, so I forgot (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's kind of worse than the mom's clothes yeah. just a little bit just just a little bit and brian's like um excuse me yeah so um brian being a bad bitch immediately went to attack daniel because spoiler alert, this is daniel um yeah Duh. he 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 went to attack Daniel. Daniel, who still had the hatchet in hand, was able to fight off Brian and ran to hide. Um, <laughs> Brian got the fuck out of there and called the police. And the story of the, quote, ghost began to completely unfold. Upon searching the house, the police found a small hidden door behind a dresser in Annie's closet. When they opened the door, it was found that within the walls of the Andrews house was a crawl space that Daniel had made into his home and had been living out of for several weeks. Wow. Uh, Not only that, but Daniel himself was still in there. So when they opened the door, he was just sitting there. Like, hey. (laughs) Probably still in the getup that he was in. When yeah, probably. Brian attacked him. Uh, so he was immediately apprehended. Um, luckily, 
And upon further searching, they were able to piece together how Daniel had conducted his uh, paranormal occurrences. Within the safety of the Andrews crawlspace, Daniel was able to travel the house and spy on the family. He poked small holes in the weak spots within the walls to spy on different family members, especially Annie and Jessica, which, disgusting. Um, she's eight, bro. Yeah, she's literally eight years old. <laughs> Inside of the crawl space, authorities found trash, a sleeping bag, food, beer, and clothing items that were stolen from all of the members of the Andrews. So not only does he have the clothes of deceased mother... He has the clothes of, like, everyone, or, like, different clothing items from everyone. Like I said, Daniel was immediately arrested by authorities, uh, but because of his age, Daniel was taken to a juvenile detention center because he was only 16 at the time. Mm. Yeah. Well. Okay. (laughs) Committed an adult crime, for sure. (laughs) Committed a whole adult crime. Well... (laughs) So he stayed at the detention center for 10 months until he turned 17 and therefore could be tried as an adult within the state of Massachusetts. Hmm. Okay, there you go. So they they did have something like working up. They didn't want to go for trying him as an adult when he was a minor. So they just kind of let him wait it out. Okay. Because he did not have that long. Yeah. So, in October 1987, Daniel was released from the juvenile center, and his case was transferred from juvenile court to adult court. And when I say released, I mean he was, like, um, transferred to a prison, like a a big boy boy prison. Yeah, okay. Um, Because of this, uh, Daniel was offered bail, because, you know, in adult court cases, bail is set, which Daniel's mother helped him pay. And he was now out again. Oh. Uh, despite this, you know, you can't, even if you're out on bail, you can't just fucking well, go yeah, billy billy. Just... <laughs> <laughs> he was facing four charges of armed assault on a dwelling, uh, breaking and entering, larceny of at least $100, malice destruction of profit. Property And what I think is the most interesting is four counts of kidnapping. Um, which I was like, why the hell would they charge him with kidnapping? But I think because he kind of held Jessica and Annie captive in their house. Yeah, I would. I guess I understand that. Yeah, because they were like terrified in their own home. Exactly. I don't really know what other charge you would give that as well, because mm-hmm. it's not like he hurt them or um, actually attacked them. Or, uh... right. And I don't, I don't think when we built the justice system, we were like, ah, yes, this is going to help us catch some insane human. That yeah, I don't think we really marked out a uh, crime for hanging out in someone else's walls. So, rising a family for yeah. yeah, I think I think we'll call it square. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Daniel Laplante was set to appear in court on December twelfth, nineteen eighty-seven. Uh, but he had some other plans in mind. Uh, okay. You see, instead of reflecting on his behavior during his time in the detention center, Daniel apparently learned nothing. 
Uh, right. Literally, as soon as he was released, he immediately went back to his old ways and started breaking into houses. Oh. Like, so okay. quickly. On the drive home. On the drive <laughs> Pretty much. You gotta stop at the Jenkins so I can move their couch. It's been a while. In a minute, they might think they're in the clear. They might have forgotten that their couch is supposed to move to the right two inches every single day. Uh, in November 1987, it was believed that Daniel broke into several houses and stole two handguns from a specific neighbor's house. Oh. So um, he's getting a his burglaries are getting a little closer together, and they're getting a, a little closer to home. Well, and he's also stealing now. Uh, well, he was stealing before, but now he's like stealing like uh, firearms, which you know yeah. does not look great. Right. Mm-hmm. It seemed that Daniel had graduated from simply wanting to mess with his victims and was ready to try something much more sinister. Uh, December first, nineteen. 19- First, 1987 was shaping up to be a very normal day for the Gustaf Gustafsson <laughs> family. I think that is correct. I did look it up, but again, is that like Annie and Jessica? No, this is a new family that we're oh. being introduced to. Okay, so let's meet the fam. Uh, the family consisted of a married couple, uh, 33-year-old Priscilla and 34-year-old Andrew. Um, they also had two beautiful children, which were 7-year-old Abigail and 5-year-old William. So literally the perfect nuclear family. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, and also Priscilla was, I think, 7 months pregnant at this point. Hmm. Yeah, no more so... nuclear family. Exactly. A little... <laughs> no more nuclear family. <laughs> They were bringing in a third child, which, you know, that ruins everything. <laughs> yeah. I say to Gemma, the third child. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was a mistake. <laughs> they didn't mean for this to happen. Nope. nope. Uh, Priscilla was described as an incredibly sweet and caring soul. She was a nursery school teacher at the church that her family belonged to, and she was very, very involved in her church and her faith, and that was kind of like her thing that she did. Good for her. Yeah, you know, all the power to her. She seemed very, like, like a very nice lady. <laughs> like I said, she worked and volunteered at the church, and a lot of people said she did this so she could have time at home with her children, especially five-year-old William, and with the next one coming along, she would need to be at home a lot more. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's what um September did. Yeah, you just did the church. That's it. Yep. It 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 really frees frees you up for other things like mothering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> During the afternoon of December first, Priscilla and William were home alone. Well, Andrew, a full-time attorney, was at work, and Abigail was at school. This is when Daniel entered the house to find Priscilla and William. Now, he did not enter this house thinking it would be empty. He knew very full well that they would be there, and he had armed himself with one of the handguns that he had previously stolen. Damn. Uh, He threatened Priscilla. And probably threatened to kill William. 
and was able to get her into her shared bedroom that she had with Andrew, uh, where, trigger warning, Daniel violently beat and raped her several times. When he finished, he put a pillow to her head and raised the handgun against it and fired two shots into her. Daniel. That is a yeah. big jump from living in the walls. Um, he and there's like no cooldown period. Like no, the wall the thing. <laughs> well, I guess there was because there was ten months elapsed between. But like as soon as he got out, he was yeah, he was serving the time. Yeah. Uh, it's believed he shot through the pillow to muffle the gunshot and not scare five year old William, who was probably already terrified. But when he finished killing Priscilla, he lured William into an upstairs bathroom where he drowned him in the bathtub. Dude. Yeah. Just he had a gun and he And wow. he chose to hold a five year old child underwater. I think um this is awful, awful, but I think he did that because he wanted to see the suffering because he gets off on that. Probably. Yeah, which is disgusting and i hate it yeah um daniel didn't leave after that he waited for seven-year-old abigail to come home from school and he took her upstairs with her dead brother in the bathtub and he drowned her as well jesus yeah so it's believed that daniel was likely scouting and stalked the gustafson family before choosing them as his targets and that was oh, the, the reason way. he knew that Abigail would be coming home. Yeah. 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 Poor freaking Andrew. For returns real. home from work around 5.30 to a very quiet home. Which, if you have a five and a seven-year-old, that is never a thing. Nope. Yeah, nope. there is something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew wandered through the house, and upon finding no one, like, in their regular places, like the living room or the kitchen, he ventured into his and Priscilla's shared bedroom. When he opened the door, he was greeted with a very gruesome sight. Um, the room was covered in blood. He found Priscilla's body laying motionless on the floor. The pillow was still over her head, and there was blood, like, seeping through the pillow. So it was very obvious that she was not getting up. Yeah. Uh, Immediately after seeing the body of his wife, Andrew was like, nope, got the hell out of there, and called 911. Which that is the correct thing to do. Uh Uh-huh. You do not keep going after you find that. Uh, He later stated that seeing the body of his wife uh, shook him to his core, which, why the fuck wouldn't it, especially in that state? And he could not bear to search further because he feared he would find his children dead as well, which he would have if he kept going. When the police arrived, they found Priscilla exactly how Andrew had described, and they also found the children in the upstairs bathroom. All three of them were announced dead on the scene. In the master bedroom, they were able to find two 22 caliber bullet casings, uh, semen stains, a partial condom wrapper on the bedside table, and a discarded sock containing saliva, which was believed to be used as a gag for Priscilla. Jeez. Yeah. Um, 
he did not do very well on cleaning up. We'll say that right now. <laughs> uh, within the couple's closet, they found several items that were likely used to choke Priscilla, including a sock, a necktie, stockings, and pantyhose. Like, they were all kind of fashioned into garrots. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah, just really spectacular. <laughs> Beyond the bedroom, in the kitchen, they found several opened and untouched beer cans, which, what the fuck? As well as several pages that contained pornographic material that were apparently just, like, ripped right out of a porn magazine and just left there. They also found a footprint that was left in the flower bed outside on their property. So, this was a very, very sloppy crime, and I think it gives us some insight into how freaking frenzied Daniel was when he did this. Yeah, so my thought is that he really just didn't give a shit. Mm -mm. Like, I, I don't think he was thinking about the cleanup in the slightest. No, he was thinking about, oh, this is gonna be great. And, like, yeah. he, he didn't think further than that. He just did it, and then he left. This horrific crime sent shockwaves through the community of Townsend because, you know, things don't happen here. Like, this doesn't happen here. Like, that kind of mentality that everybody has wherever they are. Yeah. Authorities worked quickly to gather up a list of potential suspects. And unsurprisingly, because of his very recent brushes with the law, Daniel made it onto that list. Huh. Huh. Authorities also suspected Daniel because of multiple items had been taken from the Gustafsson house. And at the time, Daniel was living with his mother and stepfather who lived less than a mile away. So, mm. you know, yeah. and they're like, okay, this kid's known for taking things. So maybe, just maybe. So the next day, because they're moving quickly, on December 2nd, authorities cornered Daniel at a public library and questioned him about his whereabouts during the time of the crime. All right. Daniel said that he was at home watching TV for most of the previous day. Uh, not looking great. Um, not really a solid not alibi. Really an alibi. <laughs> no. And later in the afternoon, he attended his six-year-old niece's birthday party. That's a little better, but not by much. Daniel seemed really nervous when he was talking to police, and that made him even more suspicious in their eyes. But because they had, like, no evidence, they just kind of had to let him go. Yeah, that's fair. They did come back later that day. They arrived at the LaPlante family house to ask him further question, and Daniel, who was on the front porch at the time, like, when the police pulled up, looked at them and ran into the woods. <laughs> Daniel. My guy. He's really... That's not the most suspicious really, thing you can do right now. He's really not good at acting innocent at all. Because once again, I don't think he was thinking about this part at well, all. No, he was just thinking about the euphoria he would get from doing it, which is disgusting. But uh, Yeah. The police at this point are like, okay, come on, buddy. <laughs> so, believing that Daniel had something to do 
or, or had something to hide, they searched the wooded area that connected the LaPlante and the Gustafsson houses. Um, because there was like a little like woods area and that is technically owned by nobody. So they can search that without a warrant. Well, yeah, it's just the woods. Exactly. Within the woods, authorities found several pieces of incriminating evidence. <laughs> These included. Of course they did. You know. Of course, he, of course he ran like where he hid the evidence. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, these included a bloodied shirt that belonged to Daniel. Um, <laughs> you know that he just threw off, and a pair of wet gloves that were believed to be used by Daniel while he drowned both Abigail and William. Uh, at this point, Townsend authorities issued an all-points bulletin on Daniel LaPlante. And basically, an all-points bulletin is an... I, I describe it as an amber alert for criminals, and here's why. Because it alerts uh, local and surrounding law enforcement that a suspect in a case is at large and to keep an eye out for them. So, okay. I would say that's a fair comparison. Yeah, it you is. Know. Uh, with this, the hunt for Daniel commenced, but <laughs> Daniel wasn't gonna go quietly, by any means. No, no, no. Um, 50 local and state police officers were tasked with finding Daniel, and the task force included the use of state police helicopters and dozens of police dogs. <laughs> yeah, so they're trying to get this kid quickly. Police? Yeah also began to inform the public, asking anyone who might have seen or know anything about his whereabouts to immediately contact the police. Because, uh, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, who was probably still in his manic, frenzied state, because remember, this is only maybe 24 hours after he's just murdered an entire family. Right. Uh, was not particularly careful while he was on the run, which huge, huge shocker there. Yeah. In an attempt to get a, as far away from Townsend as possible, Daniel broke into a single woman's house in Littleton, Massachusetts, which is a few towns over, and threatened her at gunpoint. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he broke into this woman's house, said, I will shoot you. Take me to your car. Um, Daniel forced a woman to drive him around in her Volkswagen van. It didn't really say where they were going. I think they were just like driving around town because he really didn't know what the fuck to do at this point. Because <laughs> he's a 17-year-old kid. Yeah. Who, yeah, no. Luckily, the woman was able to escape and informed authorities that Daniel was now driving her stolen Volkswagen van, which, um, not the most inconspicuous car you could have chosen. Nah, like, dude, it's a Volkswagen van. It's probably, like, bright yellow. <laughs> nah. Like, they're gonna find you pretty fast with that one. Um, yeah. not only this, but several people had reported seeing Daniel since his image had been plastered across local papers and news channels, and he was doing literally nothing to, um, like, disguise his appearance. So, yeah, going great. Um, on December 3rd, two days after the crime, 
after several tips, including the woman from Littleton, police were able to locate Daniel, who was hiding out in a dumpster in Ayer, Massachusetts. Yeah. My guy's in the dumpster? Yeah, he was literally in the in a in the dumpster with the trash. Wow. He's like, they'll never find me here. <laughs> he was arrested immediately on the charges of murdering Priscilla, Abigail, and William, as well as a slew of other offenses he received while running from the law. Yeah. Uh, you know, that if you do run from authorities, they will charge you for it. Just so everyone knows. Uh-huh. That is a whole other offense. Maybe don't do that. Um, <laughs> or uh, just, maybe, you know, don't do something that'll get the authorities after you in the first place. Yeah, Let's maybe just... That. Yeah, that's a good... I like that one. <laughs> as you could probably guess, the evidence was not on Daniel's side. <laughs> as I previously said he was extremely sloppy while committing this crime. Um, when authorities were able to search the LaPlante house, they found the stolen gun that was used to kill the Gustafsson family in a glove compartment of a scrapped Jeep Cherokee on the LaPlante property. So it was like just like a uh, a junk Jeep that didn't work anymore. And Danny was like, let me just put this in here. Ah. Furthermore, a ballistics expert was able to examine the gun and determined that the 22 caliber bullet casing found on the scene came from that gun. So, you know, there's... Yeah, there we go. That's literally the smoking gun evidence. You yeah. cannot get clearer than that. <laughs> In Daniel's closet, they found a pair of Converse that... Surprise, surprise, match the footprint that was left in the flower bread at the Gustafsson house. All right. Oh, yeah. Um, crazy. Inside the house, they also found a cordless telephone that had been stole, stolen from the Gustafsons, and Daniel's foot thumbprint was on it. So, again, not looking great. And while the semen that was found on the bed could not be proven to be Daniel's because of the lack of DNA testing abilities that were available in the late 80s, they were able to determine that the semen was produced by someone with blood type A, which it, can we guess what Daniel's blood type is? A! I think it's A! No, I think it's O. Yeah. Sorry, he's got B. Sorry. No dice. No. Uh, oh, it actually wasn't him. Uh, it was a second man in the walls. Yeah, uh, just another guy. Totally random. Super weird. <laughs> Despite the mountains of evidence against Daniel, he decided, I'm going to plead not guilty. Dude. What? <laughs> That's what he pled when the trial came around in October 1988, almost a full year after the crime had been committed. Before the trial, they did have Daniel go through a psychiatric evaluation and found that he was fit to stand trial, which um, if you don't know, if you are determined insane by the law, that means you did not know right from wrong. It also means they will send you to a psychiatric facility. You uh, will not mean- just go free. I hate, like, why would you go for an insanity plea if you are not insane? Yeah. Um, because you're going to go. Gonna be. Has anyone, 
this scene, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like, guys, come on. Yeah. Come on. But yeah, uh, that basically means whether or not he had something mentally going on, he did know right from wrong while he was committing the crimes. Just wanted that to be perfectly clear for anyone who didn't know that. Yeah. The prosecution not only had the evidence on their side, but over 50 witnesses who testified on Daniel's increasingly erratic and scary behavior over the years. Danny, it's not looking great. Yeah, no, because he made an impression on everyone he met, and everyone was like, yeah, I'll testify against that motherfucker. (laughs) Greasy little man. (laughs) Yeah. This included testimony from some of Daniel's classmates and family members. I'm not sure if his mother testified, but I do know that his stepfather and his two brothers both testified. Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. That's a punch in the face. Daniel himself also just wasn't helping his case at all. In court, he came off as extremely cold and very unremorseful. He could oftentimes be seen smirking or laughing next to his lawyer as his horrific crimes were described in detail to everyone in the court. So, Dude. buddy, buddy, I, I honestly think he's just like, yeah, I'm caught. I don't care at this point. Yeah, probably. But despite everything, Daniel's lawyers really tried. They argued that the evidence the prosecution had presented was circumstantial. What? And could instead be linked to any other member of the LaPlante family. Which I guess you um, could argue. Like, I, like yeah, all of the, the stuff. Did the seven-year-old kill everybody and then drown herself? No, 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 no. Um, the LaPlante family. They're saying, oh, d- oh there's okay. nothing you could say that Daniel's brother didn't do this or Daniel's yes. stepmother didn't do this because that's where okay. the evidence is. Yeah, But for that to have happened, someone would have had to put on Daniel's shoes, run to the house. And put Daniel's thumbprint on the phone? Put Daniel's thumbprint (laughs) on the phone! Yeah, yeah, it was Taken the handgun that Daniel had previously stole, like, yeah, no. (laughs) Sorry, I see what you're trying to do, but no. Yeah. This argument sort of fell apart after Daniel's brother and stepfather all testified with rock solid alibis for December 1st. So they were like, well, shit. <laughs> in a last ditch effort, Daniel's team spoke of his troubled childhood in order to try and gain some sympathy. Because, you know, what else are you going to do? But it, the damage had already been done. Like, yeah, if anything, th- that would honestly make it worse. That would piss like. me off as it a jury member. Yeah, <laughs> yeah personally, like- if I just listened to a testimony about how this dude um, essentially kidnapped two kids and then killed two more, and then he was like, oh, I had a bad dad and a bad stepdad, I would be like, okay, jail. <laughs> jail. <laughs> um, it is worth Think mentioning, about I that don't- In jail. I- I don't think they could mention anything about Annie or Jessica during this trial because no, they are trying him for funny. a completely different crime. But yeah, after seeing this guy like smiling and laughing while they're talking yeah. about a five-year-old and a seven-year-old drowning, hell no. No. Hell no. It took the jury only five hours to deliberate. 
and Daniel was found guilty on all of the all counts against him. Yeah, no surprise there. The judge gave him no mercy and sentenced Daniel to three consecutive life sentences with the possibility of parole only after serving at least 45 years. Woo! Which would mean he's only eligible in 2032. Well, we actually got a good judge for once. Yeah. God. <laughs> There's some justice. At least this case isn't like, oh, and they got out after two years, even yep. though they did this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Which happened? Which, which oh, does yeah. happen. <laughs> the past two cases, though. <laughs> too much. As in, well, yeah, the past two cases. <laughs> He was taken away and started serving his time at MCI Northfolk Prison in Northfolk. Uh, sorry, Norfolk. There's no TH. Uh, Norfolk, Massachusetts. Daniel has been described as a downright horrible and whiny little bitch of a prisoner. <laughs> he's constantly making a fuss about something. Whether it be the fact that he's not safer on the other inmates, he's getting threats. Or that he couldn't receive pornographic material via the mail because it was contraband. Which, I am so, so sorry that you, a convicted child murderer, is having a rough time getting along with other prisoners in fucking prison, you piece of shit. Like, no. Yeah, like, um, that is a gateway to get prison shanked, my guy. Sorry, you made your choice. Yeah, that was all you. Yeah, and he he got uh, the thing about the pornographic material. Someone tried to send him something, and he got pissed because it got like taken away. And it's like, yeah, no you're shame. in prison. You're a you criminal. Get everything you want. You should have yeah. maybe uh, considered that before before becoming a criminal. Yeah. Daniel also tried to argue that he was not allowed to freely exercise his newfound religion, which was Wicca, in prison because the lack of oils and ritual materials. Which, again, dude, dude, you're in prison. Uh-huh. You can't just get a get a bunch of contraband under the guides of you doing a ritual. Like, I'm sorry, no, mm-hmm. fuck you. Uh, in 1993, Daniel was able to make his first appeal. Uh, he appealed on the grounds that a search warrant should not have been granted on his house, which I don't really no. even know where they were going with this, because that's just utter bullshit. Yeah, what? So the appeal was denied pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> but Daniel was again able to appeal his case in 2017. This time, the now 46-year-old Daniel went to the Supreme Court to appeal on the grounds that juveniles cannot be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So, basically, he's saying, I was 17, and even though in the state of Massachusetts, you can try a 17-year-old as an adult, as a minor, I should not have gotten consecutive life sentences. Okay, bro, let's go again right now. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, uh, if granted, this would mean that Daniel would be immediately eligible for parole as he had already served 30 years. Oh. So what 
So a life sentence in Massachusetts is 30 years. And because he's saying you shouldn't have given a 17 year old. You shouldn't have been able to give me more than one. Yes. Yes. yes, Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So the Gustafsson family and the prosecution were immediately against this appeal because what the hell? Because, yeah. They were really hoping that the original sentencing would be upheld. In the first resentencing hearing, which was held in Middlesex, Massachusetts, Daniel directly apologized to the Gustafsson family, saying, I don't have words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I'm truly sorry for the harm that I've caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depths of my soul, I am sorry. Yeah. No, fuck you. Yeah. That doesn't (laughs) matter, dude. Uh, Despite this, many people in attendance, both those in the Kostafison family and onlookers, said that Daniel's apology seemed very hollow and just really cold. He refused to make eye contact with any of the Kostafisons and kept his expression, like, very neutral. Mm. So, did not seem very sincere. Judge Helena Kazanjian was less than impressed with Daniel's apology, saying that Mr. Plant had not been rehabilitated. This case does not involve a single act and resulted in three deaths. Mr. LaPlante committed three distinct and brutal murders. He killed a 33-year-old pregnant mother and her five- and seven-year-old children. He left a family and community completely devastated. The court finds that maximum penalty is warranted. Woo! Yes! So she formally resentenced Daniel to his original sentence. She Um, finally said, re-fuck you. (laughs) He said, um, you fucking thought, bitch. Uh, Ranked. And that means he will not be eligible for parole until 2032, and I hope he never fucking gets it. Yeah, that would be sad. Which, Um, in all actuality, I don't think he will. I really don't. No, I I don't think he will. Um, I hope he won't. I hope so. (laughs) If some whack-ass judge gets his case, we might be shit out of luck, but... yeah. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, it we will end on a little bit of a happier note, which is uh, how Andrew Gustafsson went on with his life, uh, despite having just such a horrible, awful thing happen to you. He was able to find happiness again, and he happily remarried to another widow who was named Carol, and they got married in 1989. Uh, Andrew and Carol both wore two wedding rings, which mm-hmm. one represented their dead spouse and the other one represented each other, which I think is like sweet and like super cool. That's that's really cool, actually. Yeah. The couple did have two children. They were both daughters and they continued to live a really happy and peaceful life. Andrew did die, unfortunately, of uh, cancer. I could not find the specific type of cancer in 2014 at the age of 60. Damn. So that sucks. But I will leave us on a cool, like, kind of uplifting note, which is what Andrew said when he was referring to Daniel in an interview in 2007. He said that LaPlante could take my family away, but he couldn't stop my hope my life, faith, and my building a new life. 
which I think is really beautiful and cool that he was able to take a such a horrible situation and turn it around like that. Yeah, for sure. Because if right, very strong person right there. Yeah, and I hope his life was filled with just rainbows and sunshine. For real, after all that shit, <laughs> he I lived. Hope, I really okay. hope his life got much better, mm-hmm. which it sounds like it did. I did. It did. He was able to find happiness. Um, yeah. You know, and solace, which was very nice. And I always love when that can happen. But yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this crazy episode. Um, (laughs) So I do want to talk a little bit about the article I read. The article I read, it only talked, or like the initial article, like not something I did research on or anything. Um, It only talked about Annie and Jessica, like that situation. And then it had one sentence at the end that was like, he later went on to murder a pregnant wife. Jesus. (laughs) her two children. I'm like, wait, what? You can't just gloss over that. What? (laughs) So yeah, that's why I had to do this case because I was like, yeah. I mean, granted, the the living in the walls thing was the funny part and was the like, because like nothing weird to. like no he didn't really do anything until he did (laughs) yeah yeah no that's definitely the weird like quirky like ah part because no one no one really got too hurt in that situation at least physically uh and then they were like oh yeah and also he sucks (laughs) (laughs) but yeah um, you guys can find us on Instagram at True Crime Say What. You can send us an email at True Crime Say What at gmail.com. We will be coming at you with another case. Bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, by the way, to stop it, you just press stop.